The following message is from Pastor Peter Cho of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, today I want to pick up uh, a bit on um, something I actually preached on two weeks ago, if you were with us during our Advent series um, the week before Christmas. And uh, if you recall, if you were here, we learned about the Apostle Peter. Um, And I want to just spend uh, uh, today's message unpacking a bit more of what it means to follow Jesus through the life of Peter, the Apostle. Because I think there are so many instructive things for us, especially as we embark on a new year, that we can apply from his life. And uh, as a refresher, if you recall, we learned that, one, Jesus as the touchstone reveals to us what a true disciple is, a follower of Jesus is, through the person of Peter. And we learn that true discipleship is not defined by our spiritual successes or failures in life, but by our faith in God's unconditional love. And if you recall, Peter, I think, is such a good example of that. Just He messed up a lot, failure after failure, especially ultimately in his betrayal, and yet um, his faith in God's unconditional love uh, did not fail like Judas's did. And we learn that a true disciple is someone who loves Jesus and who follows Jesus and follows Jesus to the end. And so to summarize, a true disciple is defined by their faith in Jesus and by their following of Jesus. A disciple is defined by their faith in Jesus and by their following of Jesus. I want to show you a brief video uh, I took, I think, 15 years ago when I first taught my oldest son, Caleb, how to ride a bike. And uh, Caleb at that time was five years old, and my, my second son, Timothy, was two years old at the time. And, and uh, I just want to show you this video. That's it. (laughs) I wanted to show that because I don't know if you could hear Timothy. He was two at the time. He could barely talk. He just learned how to walk like a year earlier. But you could see, hear how frustrated he was. He was trying to keep up with us, his older brother. Um, And he's like, Appa, don't go. (laughs) He's like, wait. (laughs) And uh, he tried so hard to keep up with us. He tried so hard to follow. But he couldn't even steer his tricycle in the right direction. He just started veering to the right. And, you know, I, I show this video because I think oftentimes this is how we feel when we try to follow Jesus. I think sometimes it can feel very frustrating and even futile. Who can live up to this standard? How do you follow someone who's perfect? It seems impossible. And I think actually God knows that. And in his compassion, I think that's why he goes out of his way to give us the life and the example of Peter. Peter is one of the most accessible and approachable people In the Bible, he makes so many mistakes and says so many boneheaded things that I think we can all relate to him, right? We've all been there. And through Peter, I believe God has given us a living example of what it looks like to be his follower. And the fact that Peter's very first and his last encounter with Jesus is bookended by these two words, follow me, 
follow me. And I think this is God's way of telling us, take note of this guy. Study his life. Learn from him as he obeys my command to follow me. Follow his life as you follow me. So what can we learn about what it means to follow Jesus through Peter? Uh, Today is not meant to be a comprehensive list, but I want to highlight just three things. I think three important marks of a follower of Jesus that we can observe and hopefully emulate through the life of Peter. I believe one of the first and most foundational things that Peter shows us is that a follower of Jesus understands who Jesus is. A follower of Jesus understands who Jesus actually is. If you claim to be a follower of someone, you must know who it is you're following, right? Or you're not a true follower. Matthew 16, 13 through 18 says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And this is one of the few times that Jesus wholeheartedly affirms Peter. Peter gets it right. And I believe Jesus does this so that all people for all time, not just the disciples who were there, that all people would understand that the first and most fundamental thing one must settle before Jesus is understanding who he is. Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is basically, wow, Peter, no, no one could have revealed that to you except God the Father. And he follows with this, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, there's some debate about this statement that Jesus says. What exactly is Jesus referring to when he says, on this rock I will build my church? Some, like the Roman Catholic Church, believe that Jesus is referring to Peter, the person. That God would build his church with Peter as the leader of this church. Capital C. And this is why Catholics view Peter as the first pope. And every subsequent pope as a successor to St. Peter, it's based on this verse. And there are many others who believe something different. They believe that this rock in which Jesus will build his church is not the person of Peter, but rather the confession that Peter makes, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God. And I'm convinced that it's this, the latter, is what Jesus is speaking of, that the church would be built on the true identity and the mission of Jesus, and the kingdom of God would advance through this important confession. And there are a number of reasons for this, but I think one of the most compelling is found in the very next chapter in Matthew, in chapter 17, we're told shortly after this conversation, Jesus takes his three closest disciples somewhere special, where God reveals something to drive this confession home. Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, says this, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. 
If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, this moment is known as the transfiguration. And it's kind of strange, isn't it? What in the world is going on here? Well, if you remember, six days earlier, Jesus confronts his disciple with a question, who do you say that I am? And there's confusion about whether Jesus is just another prophet, right? That's what everyone else is saying. But Peter comes in and he makes it clear. He says, he's the Messiah. You are the Messiah, which is in Hebrew is Mashiach, the anointed or chosen one. The Greek word for Messiah is Christos, Christ, which also means anointed, chosen, or promised one. And so when someone says Jesus Christ, which is actually a very common curse in our culture, they're actually proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. That's what they're saying. And when you read this passage on the transfiguration of Jesus, in light of his conversation with the disciples right before it, it seems clear to me what's happening. I believe God wants us to know in no uncertain terms that what Peter said is true, that Jesus is God's son. And we see this by hearing the voice of God thunder from above, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I don't know how to make it any more clear, right? This is my son. This is the son of God. God's voice not only affirms Jesus as his son, but the presence of Moses and Elijah affirmed Jesus as the promised Messiah. And I, to understand this, you have to think like a Jew here, okay? If, you want, if you're going to choose one person to represent the Old Testament law, it would have to be Moses, right? He wrote the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. He was given the law on Mount Sinai. If you were to choose one person to represent the Old Testament prophets, it would have to be Eli, Elijah. And so God's voice and the presence of these two great men of the Old Testament is affirming Jesus as the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. Jesus is the promised and the prophesied fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the chosen one. And this matters because through the life of Peter, we see that a follower of Jesus believes and testifies to who he is. Jesus is the promised Savior. He's the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. This is so important. And Jesus wanted to make this clear from the very beginning with all of his followers. Peter, just before his death in his second and his last epistle, he's reflecting on this moment in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. He says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him through the, from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I loved. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven and we, when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star 
rises in your heart. Now, here's Peter. Decades later, he's processing one of the most meaningful events in his life in this letter because it's proof that Jesus' identity and his mission is not a myth, as some are claiming it now to be. It's not a made-up story. Jesus is a real person whose life and whose story and whose teachings and whose death and whose resurrection are real, and he and many others were eyewitnesses to it. And why is this so important? Because this affirms that Jesus is who he said he was. C.S. Lewis famously explains what this reality confronts us with when it comes to the person of Jesus. Lewis says, I'm trying here, in mere Christianity, he writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis is saying we cannot dismiss Jesus as just a great moral teacher if he claimed to be the Son of God. The only options left to us are either he is desperately evil, meaning that he is a liar, knowing he's not the Son of God, or he is totally insane. He's a lunatic who thinks he is God, but he's not. Or he is who he claimed to be. He is the Son of God, and he is Lord of the universe. And this is huge because it means that Jesus is either totally irrelevant or he is everything. He cannot, he cannot be somewhere in the middle. And that's where we like to put him, in this comfortable middle space in our lives, just in the margins of our lives. But we can't just seek Jesus for moral advice when needed. If he is truly the son of God, then everything he said was of utmost importance and we must believe in who he is and we must follow him. Okay, I promise my last two points will go much quicker, but I know the youth are used to two-hour sermons after the retreat, so just, just hang in with me. It's going to be a lot shorter than that. The second thing we learn from Peter about the mark of a true disciple is that a follower of Jesus hears and obeys the voice of God in their life. A follower of Jesus hears and obeys the voice of God in their life. Early on in the book of Acts, after Jesus leaves the disciples, we find them immediately going out and they're preaching the gospel with great courage. And thousands are coming to faith. And feeling threatened by, the, by this, the men, the religious leaders, imprison Peter and John. And they bring them out for questioning the next day. But they're not intimidated by these leaders. And then it says this. Now, when they, the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John... And they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love that verse. Because the mark of a follower of Jesus is not someone who's eloquent or educated or extraordinary. The mark of a disciple is someone simply who has been with Jesus. And those who have been with Jesus know his voice. They recognized the voice of the good shepherd as he said they would. 
and they follow and they yield to that voice as Peter did. You know, a couple summer goes, summers ago, we had this uh, daddy, um, dad and youth kind of camping trip overnight, and we had a lot of our youth there. And um, I remember during one of the lunch times, there was like a group of uh, junior high girls sitting at a table, and I was trying to find a way to connect with them. So I sat down and I was telling them how I'm a BTS fan. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, really? Your army? Army is like you know the, the fan base of, of BTS." And so they started asking me questions, like they were like giving me a pop quiz on BTS. And then uh, they were like, you know, who's your bias? Who's your favorite? And I said, Jungkook. You guys all know this, right? Jungkook. And, um, and then one of the girls was like, let me play you a song. Tell me which member it is that's singing it. <laughs> so she started playing this song. I'd never heard this one. It was like a real old one, obscure one. And I totally guessed her wrong. I think I said it was Jimin or something. And it was Jungkook. It was the one, it was my bias. I totally got it wrong. I'm not used to him singing that low of a voice, but it was like an old song. And these girls looked at me and they're like, you're fake army. <laughs> and I was like, I was actually a little hurt inside. I was like, I'm not. But they got me. I was exposed. I, I, didn't, I didn't really know Jungkook's voice. Like, I thought I knew Jungkook's voice. You know, it's just a silly example, but I think... The most obvious example of someone who knows and hears and obeys the voice of God is someone who studies the scripture by which God has already spoken. And for Peter in that day, the New Testament did not yet exist. And yet, though he is an educated fisherman, it's clear that Peter knew the Old Testament scriptures inside out. And you can tell when he preaches his sermons and acts, we see what he's preaching. And you can tell from his epistles, his letters, Peter knew the voice of God through the word of God. And we would do well to follow his example here as a disciple. But Peter was also able to recognize the voice of God in other ways as well. In Acts 10, we find Peter, he goes up on a roof to pray, and he falls into a trance. And he sees a vision of heaven opening up and a large sheet descending with all kinds of animals that were forbidden by Jews to eat. And the next day after meeting Cornelius, the Roman centurion, Peter realizes what that is. God's plan of salvation is clearly not just for the Jews, but for people of all nations. And he says this in Acts 10. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Despite this revelation, as we continue to read through this Acts and the New Testament, we see another major controversy that's brewing in the early church, and Peter is at the very center of it. And the issue is whether someone is saved purely by God's grace or whether other works or rituals are needed to supplement the gospel in order to be saved. And there's this strong Jewish contingent. They're called the Judaizers, and they're pushing this idea that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be saved. And apparently Peter, out of his fear of this group, He's not refuting this heresy, and it's causing division, and it's causing confusion among many in the early church. And the apostle Paul explains how he confronts Peter on this issue in Galatians chapter 2. He says, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. 
And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot going on here, but I just want to highlight, these are hard words for Peter to hear from another brother in Paul. Peter, if you remember, is the early leader of this great movement. Paul is actually a latecomer who's, you know, people are actually skeptical of because he was a persecutor of Christians before he does this complete 180. But Peter is able to take Paul's words and receive it as the voice of God in his life. And Peter corrects his error. And the early church reestablishes its gospel message with clarity. Why? Because Peter is humble enough to recognize God's voice through Paul, as well as his own sin in this matter. And not only that, Peter is able to treat Paul not as an adversary, but as a beloved partner in the gospel. In his last letter, Peter says this about Paul. He says, 2 Peter 3.15, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Peter shows us that a follower hears the voice of God and responds to that voice in their life and can still demonstrate love and grace toward the messenger, even when it blows away our previous paradigms, even when it comes in unexpected ways like a vision, even when it comes through another person and can feel hurtful or humbling. And I think this is the mark of a true believer, a true disciple of Christ, to be able to hear the voice of God in and through and despite these things. Lastly and thirdly, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> a follower of Jesus understands the mission of God <coughs> and obeys the call of the kingdom. A follower of Jesus understands the mission of God and obeys the call of the kingdom. <coughs> I was reading a book by N.T. Wright uh, at the start of Advent entitled Advent for Everyone. A Journey with the Apostles. And I was struck by this particular quote um, because I think it captures the mission of God and why we honor these traditions. We just went through Advent as a church. Why we celebrate Easter, why we do these things year after year after year. N.T. Wright says this, the early Christians developed the church year as a way of telling, learning, and reliving the story of Jesus, which stands at the heart of our faith. And they did so. They came to understand that it wasn't simply a matter of going round and round the same sequence and never getting anywhere. Think of a bicycle wheel. It goes round and round, but it is moving forwards, not standing still. The same circuit around the hub of the wheel becomes part of the forward movement of the bicycle as a whole. So it is with the church's year. We go around the circuit, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost. But the point of it all is that in doing this, we are not simply going round and round the same topics and never getting anywhere. We are signing on as part of God's larger project, God's forward purposes, his plans for the whole creation to be renewed. In Jesus, God brought heaven and earth together. In his second coming, that joining together will be complete. This That is the Advent hope. When I read that, I was like, oh, it makes sense. Why we do this? 
And I have to confess, like even leading up to Christmas, this, I don't know why, but this Advent season is really tough for me. Uh, I just felt, I've been feeling really tired, really weary, and I just, it's been hard for me to just um, even come and feel like worshiping. I'll be totally honest. And when I woke up on Christmas Sunday morning last, last Sunday, you know, and Kim can tell you this, like I actually didn't want to come to church. <clears throat> and I was leading worship, so it was kind of a problem. <laughs> and I know that sounds sad. But when I got here, I, I have to tell you, if you were here, maybe you know what I'm talking about. I, I immediately felt just the power of corporate worship, why it is we do what we do. And I, and I realized I really have to repent. Like, I remember during COVID, like, how we longed to be able to come together and worship. And already I was feeling like, I don't want to do this. And if you were here, I think you could just sense there was such a sweet spirit in this room. From the very beginning, you know, the voices of the children sung with the faith of a child. You know, the videos we watched and the testimonies that we heard from brothers and sisters just pointing us to Jesus. The truth of God's word expressed both in, in the sermons and in song. All of these, I think, just helped turn my heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And that's why we gather here. It's not just to go through the motions, but to understand how these motions are to propel us forward to God's greater mission. You know, our brother Andrew Pooley, he took a picture of, of service last week, and I know you can't see here, um, but I actually was staring at this picture a long time this week. And um, I was just like zooming in. This was a particular moment, I think, towards the end of the youth video. Everyone's like laughing and smiling. I don't know if you can see that. It's on our Facebook page if you want to see it. But I encourage you, just go in there and, I, I don't know, just seeing all your faces smiling and getting blessed. And um, I, just, I would just zoom in on so many of you and, and just pray for you as I was looking at that picture. And, um, you know, I think that's what it's about. First Peter 2, 4 through 5, and verse 9, Peter says this, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, a priest is someone who is a mediator between God and mankind, right? And we are a royal priesthood, Peter says, meaning we are commissioned by the king of kings to bring his rule and to bring his reign, to bring his power, to bring his presence into this world, to bring heaven to earth. And we pray that. Even every week we pray that. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you continue in 1 Peter, you will see how he impacts this. How we are to shine the light of Jesus into the darkness. How we are to connect earth with heaven in very practical ways. Peter gives instructions on how we are to represent Jesus in our holiness, but also in our earthly relationships, whether it be under the governing authority of Roman rule, whether it be the interactions between a husband and a wife, whether it be between a master and a slave. Each relationship dynamic, he's showing us how we set aside our rights and we love and we serve others by placing their needs above our own. And he says the gospel will go forth under the power of self-giving love 
and mutual submission. And N.T. Wright says this again, with that first advent, it was clear that God's rescue operation for humans and the world had been decisively begun, but not yet completed. Jesus really did launch God's kingdom on earth as in heaven in his public career, his death, and his resurrection. But it was clear, because of the sort of thing this kingdom was, that it would then need to make its way through the humble, self-giving service of Jesus' followers. Until the time when Jesus returned to finish the work, to put all things right, to banish evil and death forever, to bring heaven and earth completely together. I think Peter understood this mission of God, and he speaks of it in his last letter by saying this, 2 Peter 3.13, 3, he says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I want to close with this. Um, you know, this, this past winter youth retreat, as you saw in the slideshow and, and heard um, testimony of, you know, I, I had the opportunity, I was getting constant updates, but then on the, the last night, on um, Wednesday night, um, my wife Kim and I were able to go up and, and join um, the youth for their last session. And it's hard to really describe in words like what, what happened that night. Um, to me, I think the best way I could describe it is just that heaven had come down to earth. And, um, you know, it felt like our youth group had their own um, transfiguration mountaintop experience where they saw Jesus and, you know, they themselves were witnesses of his glory. And there, you know, if you could show this picture, there was, there was repentance, there was reconciliation, there was revival. Youth were coming to Christ for the first time. Um, youth being set free from the bondage of sin and doubts and lies that they had believed. And there was so much love in that room, evident by the hugging. Do you see how much hugging is happening here? So much hugging. And looking back at it now, probably not the best thing to do with COVID still here. <laughs> but the love of God was flowing so freely in that room. It felt like we got a, a long glimpse of, of um, what the new heaven and new earth would look like. Um, I'll close with one last N.T. Wright quote. He says this, Heaven in the Bible is not a future destiny, but the other hidden dimension of our ordinary life, God's dimension, if you like. God made heaven and earth, and at the last, he will remake both and join them together forever. And when we come to the picture of the actual end in Revelation 21 and 22, we find not ransomed souls making their way to a disembodied heaven, but rather we find the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth uniting the two in a lasting embrace. I love that last line. In Revelation 22, we find not ransomed souls making their way to a disembodied heaven, but rather new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, uniting the two in a lasting embrace. I don't know why I've never thought of the idea of heaven and earth coming together as being a picture of Jesus embracing his beloved, but I think that is actually exactly what it is. 
a union separated by sin will one day be fully restored. And what a day it will be. There's a picture out there that you can buy on the internet. It's called First Day in Heaven. And all it is is a picture of different men and women hugging Jesus. And uh, you can buy, I think, like your own version (laughs) based on your ethnicity or gender. (laughs) But I think it's kind of profound. Like, that's the title of this. The first day in heaven is just hugging Jesus, coming face to face with the Messiah, the Son of God. And I love this picture because this is what we have to look forward to. If you are a follower of Jesus, we will see him face to face. Heaven and earth will become one again. In every sense of the word. So until that day, let us remember our mission. Let us hold on to his promise and let us follow Jesus. Let's bow our heads together. I could invite the worship team to come up and in a minute we'll enter into a time of communion. I know we've gone a little bit long tonight. But I think it it needs to be said that, um, you know, as you look at the life of Peter and how he lived, how he poured himself out in his self-giving love that he learned and watched from Jesus himself. We see that he not only lived faithfully in following Jesus, but even in his death, he followed him to the very end. The church tradition would have it that um, Peter would be crucified just like Jesus, but he would be crucified upside down only because he did not feel himself worthy to die in the exact same manner as, as his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Jesus seems to know this. In John 21, he says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Follow me. And I think that's true of so many of us. We want to follow Jesus, but it's hard. Sometimes he takes us places we do not want to go. And yet we must confront the fact that if Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he is in fact the Son of God, if he is the promised one, what choice do we have? But to follow, to hear his voice, to yield to that voice, to surrender, to follow.